remain standing for our epistle lesson and sermon text from Romans 6. I'm going to start in verse 15 and go to 18. Pay attention to God's holy and errant word. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free, from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks. Thank you for your word. Thank you for sanctifying us through it. And thank you, Father, for making us your people obedient slaves of righteousness through the power and work of the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would continue this good work in us, that you would help us to understand the implications of being children born of God, born of the Spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Since we're not under the Mosaic law, as we saw last week in verse 14, are we free to live any way we want? Is that our conclusion? Since, since you're under grace now, Christian, is it okay to live in sin? Since God's grace has got, is, is got you covered. That's the essence of Paul's question in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? You may remember that Paul asked a similar question back in verse 1. Different uh, in, in, in some ways, but similar. He asked, what shall we say then? Do we continue in sin? And what was his reason there? So that grace may abound. So there Paul acknowledges the objection that his gospel of grace would encourage people to sin more so that God's grace would increase. Why, why shouldn't we sin abundantly so that God's grace superabounds in our lives? More sin equals more grace. And so then in verses 1 to 14, Paul explained how and why it doesn't work that way. That's not how it works. The gospel of grace actually gives believers a new and a stronger incentive to obey God. When, when born-again people think about the death of Christ for their sins, their response is gratitude, holiness. You see, the gospel of Christ actually creates in Christians more of a desire to obey God's law, not less. 
in Christ, your obedience isn't a transaction between you and God that's driven by self-confidence or self-interest. Your obedience is motivated by a love for Christ that is stronger now than your love for sin. Paul ends that section by saying in verse 14, for sin will not exercise lordship over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, we, we, we talked about how that's, that's a, an indicative statement. It's a, true, it's a promise. It, it, has, it implies a command, so don't be under the lordship of sin. Um, but it's actually an objective reality for those who belong to God. You are not under the lordship of sin. And, and the reason is because you're not under law, but under grace. When we were under the law, sin did exercise lordship over us. And the only way to escape the lordship of sin is to get a new lord, a new master. The law can't lead anyone to freedom and righteousness. It's unable to produce holiness in anyone. It only has the power to... Con- to condemn and to multiply sins for the, for the unbeliever, for the person who's separate, separated from God because of his sin. And that's what it did in the Old Covenant. Now, of course, the law, that wasn't the law's fault. Paul's going to come back in Romans 7 and talk about how good and perfect the law is. It's not the law's fault, it's our doing. But the law couldn't redeem anyone. That's the point. It can only do the opposite of pointing out how, un, how unredeemed we are apart from God, how sinful we are. It only made mankind more aware of its sin problem. These are the things that Paul has been telling us already in Romans. And what Paul wants his law-loving Jewish friends in particular to understand is that it's only by being delivered from the law and its condemnation through union with Christ, that believers are empowered to obey the law. You see, that's the goal. Not freedom from obedience, but the ability to obey. Only those under the lordship of grace are able to obey God's law from the heart. And that's what God wants. But the way Paul phrases his point in verse 14 leads to the question, verse 15, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? If we're not under the commandments of the Mosaic law, are we obligated to obey it at all? What place does it have? How are we oriented to the law? Can we do whatever we want? Are the Ten Commandments binding in any way anymore? Paul's about to answer an extremely practical question, and the question is this. Since the Christian is not under law, how is he to understand the obligation, his obligation to God? More specifically, what's the believer's motivation, drive to godliness, to, to be godly, to be holy? For example, are Christians obligated to spend time with the Lord in prayer, in Bible reading, in the morning or at night. Why, why do we do that? Is it merely an obligation? Why do believers get up early 
before work to spend time with their Savior? What drives a child of God to put to death the old Adam and put on the new? What's the driver there? What, what motivates the Christian to present his body and his whole self to God rather than to sin? What compels a believer to exercise self-control and to produce the other fruit of the Spirit? If, if we as Christians aren't afraid that God's going to cast us into hell because of our moral failings, what reasons do we have for saying no to sin and yes to righteousness and holiness? If we can sin against law, uh, against God's law, and be forgiven for it every time, because God's grace is free and we're not saved by law keeping, then what's stopping us from indulging in sin? What's your incentive to obey, honor God, to live before him with integrity, to uphold his law, as Paul puts it earlier? Paul acknowledges how the logic of sinful man would answer those questions or how, how sinful natures respond to the gospel. Fallen man would hear Paul's preaching of Christ and say, oh, Paul's saying we can have the best of both worlds. Christians get to be free from the law so they can do what they want and still go to heaven. Paul responds to the question in verse 15 with the, with the same answer that he gave up in verse 1. May it never be. No way. Why? Because being saved doesn't mean that you have no master. The freedom that we have in Christ is not freedom from lordship, from slavery even. It means you have a different master who has set you free from the old master so that you can serve the new one. Paul's baseline assumption here is that no human being is absolutely free. Only God is absolutely free. Every human is a slave. The only question is, whose slave are you? Who or what is your master? That's the question before us today in this text. Either you're a slave of sin or a slave of God. You can't be both. And you can't be neither. Okay, you can't be both, but you can't be neither. You're a slave either of sin or of God. This is true of every person, every human, every descendant of Adam and Eve. There are only two masters and every member of humanity serves one of them. That's the core assumption Paul's teach. Of, of Paul's teaching in verses 16 to 22. We'll look at the second part of this next, next time. And Paul states this assumption in different ways. In verse 16, he contrasts being slaves of sin with being slaves of obedience. In verses 17 and 18, he contrasts being slaves of sin 
with being slaves of righteousness. And then later on, next week we'll see, he contrasts being slaves of sin with being slaves of God. It all, all gets at the same truth. You're either a slave of sin or a slave of God and his righteousness. So in verse 16, Paul says plainly that no one is free. Everyone's a slave. Do you not know that you are slaves of the one to whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience? You are slaves of the one you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Here Paul expands on the idea that all are slaves. Every person is presenting himself as an obedient slave to something or to someone. And, and we could put it this way, man is a worshiping being, which means you're presenting yourself as a sacrifice on some altar. You're offering yourself, your body and soul, your heart and mind, your time and talents, your hands and feet and eyes and ears and tongues and, and bellies. You're presenting your whole person as a sacrifice on the altar of something or someone, some, some higher power, however you want to think about it, something beyond. It's either God or some idol. There's no neutrality here. None of us somehow lands between the two masters, sin and, and God so that we are completely free of a Lord, of a master. Each of us is a slave to some bottom line that has become our Lord. One author put it this way, whatever controls us is our Lord. We could say whatever drives us, whatever motivates us, whatever gets us up, whatever we seek, whatever we live for, whatever consumes us, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is, in, is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. End quote. So we present ourselves to whatever we seek as that highest good in life. It may be power or approval to, to give the to repeat the examples that that author gave. It, it may be pleasure or comfort or revenge or money or recognition or health or appearance or a multitude of other things. Maybe you live for maintaining a certain schedule or exerting control over others or an exercise program or becoming someone important or maintaining a certain diet. Perhaps your highest good is to be free from rules. You want to do what you want to do with your body. You want to... Do with your eyes what you want to do with your eyes. Watch what you want to watch. Say what you want to say with your mouth. Listen to what you want to listen to with your ears. You present yourself on the altar of worldly desires or on the altar of self-interest, putting your own interests before the interests of others. Or perhaps you seek as the highest good in your life communion with the Lord Jesus and obedient enslavement to the righteousness of his kingdom. Whatever or whoever you present yourself to 
as an obedient slave is your master. You're not in control of your life. The Lord of your life is in control of your life. You're controlled by that thing or that goal or that dream or that ambition or that idol or that person to which you present yourself. So everyone worships, everyone has a God or gods. Everyone offers himself or herself to a Lord. Who or what is your Lord? Now, so that's, once Paul establishes this point in verse 16, gets us to asking these questions and thinking about it in these terms, he moves on in verses 17 and 18 to say something more specific about the Christian, about the one born of God. But thanks be to God that though you were, past tense, slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were transferred. And having been set free from sin, you have been enslaved to righteousness. So the two masters in verse 17 are called sin and obedience. That's interesting how Paul words it there. He says, think about how he words it. Either you're an obedient slave of sin or you're an obedient slave of obedience. So what's the main argument in verses 16 to 18 that I just read? What's Paul's central point of application? The main takeaway, he wants us to know that while we can't avoid being slaves, we can't avoid being unhappy slaves. You'll always be a slave, but it's possible to be a joyful slave, a free slave. In fact, you can only experience genuine freedom from bondage when you become obedient from the heart to God, when you become a bondservant of God and righteousness. True freedom is being a slave of Jesus Christ. That's the only true freedom there is. As a Christian, you, you don't have to obey the Ten Commandments to be saved, to earn salvation, to get saved, but you must obey the Ten Commandments to be Free and happy. The, the old hymn that I grew up on puts it well. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. If, you're, if you've not become obedient from the heart to God and his instruction, then you're still a slave of your own selfishness and sin. So after Paul says in verse 15, may it never be, which means no way, certainly not, he answers the implicit question, well, why not? If we're not under grace, and I'm sorry, if we're not under law, but under grace, why not sin it up? We've already overviewed his answer in verses 16 to 18, but I want to back up and walk through his answer again, this time just picking out four reasons why Paul says you shouldn't 
sin. It's not an exhaustive list, but it is a fundamental list. It's the foundational list. Number one, in verse 16, Paul says that obedience to sin is slavery to sin. So sin is slavery. It's unthinkable for a former slave to return to his old master after having been liberated, set free. During the Vietnam War, several downed pilots, American pilots, were captured and taken to the main prison in the capital city of Vietnam, Hanoi. Americans euphemistically named this prison the Hanoi Hilton after the hotel. Uh, this name wasn't indicative of the, of the posh conditions. It was a euphemism for the severe cruelty that the prisoners regularly endured. And they often were brutally beaten uh, with bamboo sticks in order to extract information, uh, sometimes being beaten to nearly to death. Uh, many of them were kept in solitary confinement for much or even most of their captivity, which lasted years. One pilot by the name of Gordon Larson, a colonel, endured so much pain that he said that he often wished for death. And he, he thought his torture would never end. He was there for six years, during which time he suffered all kinds of injuries, broken bones, broken tooth, kidney disease, dysentery. The same pilot describes the joy of being set free. When the plane carried him and the other prisoners of war out of Hanoi, the former captives, uh, it's reported, they cheered, they laughed, they clapped, and they wept. And Larson writes, we were whisked off to a large base hospital where we were greeted by an enthusiastic and caring staff. We were assigned rooms and given time to shower with real hot water and change into hospital garb. We then went down to the hospital cafeteria where we could order anything we wanted. I had steak and eggs and bacon and ham and with a side order of potatoes and a waffle. And he goes on to describe his experience as a free man. And just imagine the joy of being set free from years of captivity in this Vietnam prison. And now imagine these former captives freely deciding to return to their bondage in the Hanoi Hilton. Who in their right mind would return to such misery and captivity, such bondage? Why would they go back and submit themselves to their old oppressive master? The problem, of course, is that we don't see our sin for what it is. There's a disconnect between that illustration I gave and our understanding of our former bondage to sin. Sin doesn't, sin doesn't present itself as the Hanoi Hilton. In fact, in, instead of presenting itself as a brutal slave master, sin presents itself to you as the very essence of freedom of liberty. 
That's what the serpent told Eve, in essence, in the Garden of Eden. Don't enslave yourself to God's word, to God's rules. God wants to take away all your freedom. Be free. Liberate yourself from the form of teaching that God gave you earlier. When he was with you in the garden, experience new heights of happiness. Eat from the forbidden tree and you'll become godlike in your joy and your freedom. When the communists took over in China in the 1940s, they, they called it the liberation. They, they brainwashed the masses into thinking that the, the, the takeover, that the communist takeover was, was a liberation. Now, now you, you've been freed. Now you're experiencing true freedom. But during this so-called liberation, the people weren't very free. They, they certainly weren't free to worship God, to, to meet with other Christians, to study the Bible. Sin calls itself liberation. It promises liberation, freedom, but it delivers bondage and suffering. Sin is a crafty slave master. It enslaves in such a way that with every sinful indulgence, you become more enslaved. Every time you follow your fleshly desires, it becomes increasingly difficult to escape sin's clutches, even if you want to. When you give in to sinful passions, you become a slave to those passions. When you give in to greed or hatred or backbiting or conceitedness or selfish motives, you become enslaved to those sins apart from God's grace. This is true of every vice, every wrongdoing. Obedience to sin is slavery to sin. The second reason you shouldn't sin, even though you're not under law but under grace, is that slavery to sin leads to death. Paul says in, in, in verse 16, he'll say it again in verses 21 and 23, the result of sin is death and the wages of sin is death, eternal death. Again, this isn't what the world, the flesh, and the devil tell you about the nature of sin. Certainly not what, the, well, what Satan told Eve in the garden. God had said in, in no uncertain terms, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat, it, you eat of it you shall surely die. The, the, the serpent later put his own spin on this in the next chapter, Genesis 3, 4, and 5. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like gods, knowing good and evil. Who should Eve believe? Well, she, de she decided to res resolve the dilemma for herself, according to her own wisdom. She looked at the tree, and she, she discerned, she saw that it was good, good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And on that basis, she ate. In other, in other words, how could, how could something that feels 
so right be wrong? Sin has been effectively convincing people of that lie multiple times a day ever since Genesis 3. How can it be wrong if it feels so right? So she ate and she gave some to Adam, who was standing there with her, and he ate. What was the result? They died, as God, as God said. They died spiritually at that very moment. Their perfect fellowship with God was broken. The, the life that they had in God ended. Their perfect fellowship was instantly taken away. Sinful urges flooded their souls, which we see right away even as they shift blame and fail to take responsibility for their sins. And from that moment on, their bodies also began to break down and move toward death, which is why God says in Genesis 3.19, you are dust and to dust you shall return. Don't listen to sin's lie that it's harmless or that you can contain it. Sin is masterful at convincing you that its consequences are minimal and manageable and limited and definitely worth it. Don't listen to the lies. It leads to death. There are no minor sins. There are no insignificant outbursts of anger, no inconsequential acts of arrogance. No harmless attitudes of pride and vanity. If you know what you ought to do and you don't do it, James says it's sin, and that sin puts you a step closer to spiritual ruin. James also talks about the sin that leads to death. And sin is deceptive like the seductress in Proverbs 7. <clears throat> With such seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O oh sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, death, going down to the chambers of death. The third reason you shouldn't sin, even though you're under grace and not under law, is that you've been set free from slavery to sin. You've been liberated, truly. In the midst of all the darkness in the Garden of Eden, there was a glimmer of hope. In Genesis 3.15, God promised Adam and Eve and all of their descendants redemption through a Redeemer. The old Reformed theologian B.B. Warfield said that the most precious terms, most precious words in the vocabulary of the Christian is Redeemer and redemption. To redeem someone is to purchase them from slavery. That's what the word 
that, that's what the word means. It goes back to the Exodus when God purchased his people, Israel, from bondage in Egypt. And we're going we're gonna to look at that more next week. To free someone from their master. That's what Christ did for us. We were slaves of the cruel overlord sin, willing slaves. But Jesus paid the price for our redemption in his blood. He ransomed us through the death of Christ on the cross. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were ransomed, bought, ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, going all the way back to Adam, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. How can those who have been redeemed from slavery return to their old overlord? How? Why? Why would you willingly go back? Even for a moment. Why would you want to return to bondage after you've been set free? Number four. The fourth reason you shouldn't sin, even though you are not under the law, but under grace, is that you've become an obedient slave of righteousness. You have a new master, a new owner, and he's worked something supernatural in you, inside of you, in your spirit. Verses 17 and 18 use the metaphor of being set free from slavery, from sin, and being enslaved to righteousness, that metaphor describes God's work of conversion or regeneration in the hearts of his people. even uses that term, from the heart. This goes all the way down to the core. If you're a believer, if you have a living and active faith in Jesus... Then a time came when obedience surpassed sin in you. A time came when obedience surpassed sin in you. The change happened internally, in your heart, to use Paul's language. The Bible calls it, in other places, the new birth. Being born again, Peter says. It took place in your heart, in your spirit. You were born again, born of the Spirit, to use Jesus' language. Most of us can't put a date time stamp on when the Holy Spirit gave our spirit this new birth. We, we can't pinpoint the exact moment when we went from being a slave to sin to becoming obedient to God from the heart. We don't know precisely when we were transferred to the form of teaching that is contained in God's word at that heart level. In John 3, our Lord told Nicodemus plainly that it's difficult to know when the Holy Spirit gives new birth to a person's spirit. Jesus says in John 3, 6 to 8, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit, the Holy Spirit, 
is spirit. Okay, so the, the, the birth here that he's talking about is a spirit birth, by the spirit and for spirits. Do, and he goes on, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. There's a, there's a mystery here. Where, what it's doing, where it came from, where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, Jesus says. The new birth is a mysterious thing. But you can know it has taken place in your spirit if you have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were transferred. It's one of the evidences. In other words, to use Paul's language in verse 18, you can know you've been set free from sin if you've become a slave of righteousness in practice. Are you enslaved to righteousness or are you still enslaved to sin? Paul adds, thanks be to God at the beginning of verse 17. Thanks be to God. It's often Paul's way of saying that this is of God. The whole process is due to God's grace alone. He gets all the credit, all the praise. It was his work, 100%. Thanks be to God is Paul's way of recognizing that the new birth, your conversion to Christ, is entirely of the Lord. He stresses this point, not just in that phrase, thanks be to God, but also by using two passive verbs in verse 18. You have been set free and you have been enslaved to righteousness. Those are actions that have been done to you. Your redemption from sin was something that happened to you. You didn't help the Holy Spirit give new life to your spirit. You didn't contribute to your new birth. As I've said before, Bob Dylan was right when he sang, you got to serve somebody. You got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. He didn't know how true that was, perhaps. But it is true. You must, you have to serve, you will serve somebody or something. It's very simple. There are only two categories of people on earth. Those who are still slaves of sin and those who, thanks to God's work in their hearts, have become obedient slaves of righteousness. Your slavery to sin began at your physical birth. Or we could even back it up further to your 
conception in the womb. You entered this world as a slave of sin by nature. From that point on, you were going to serve something or somebody or someone. At that point, it was sin. But your slavery to God began at your new birth. When God gave you a heart transplant, when, when the mysterious and unpredictable work of the Spirit enabled you to believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus from the heart. And this conversion to Christ resulted in a transformation of your attitude and your conduct, your desires and your loves. Now you present yourself to a new master, a new owner. If you're still a slave of sin, you need to turn away from your current master and run to Christ. You need to become an obedient slave who obeys God from the heart. Being a, a baptized member of the new covenant does not automatically in itself make you obedient from the heart, a slave of righteousness. Confessing Christians who commit their lives to sin will be eternally condemned. It's one of Paul's main themes in the book of Romans. Doing God's will does not give you eternal life, produce eternal life, earn merit eternal life, but everyone who has eternal life will do God's will because they have become slaves of his will, slaves of righteousness. The old evangelical German scholar Adolf Schlatter was right when he said that eternal life is not for everyone who belongs to the community of faith. It's not for everyone who hears the word preached in the assembly. It's not for everyone who has been baptized. It is for those who do God's will. If you're already a slave of God, if Christ has redeemed you from your slavery to sin, if you've become a slave of righteousness, then let me leave you, people of God, with this exhortation from 1 Corinthians 6. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. Thank you, God, for freeing us from sin. Help us to live as free men, free women, free boys, free girls. To honor you and to glorify you in our bodies. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for purchasing us, for redeeming us, for paying the price for us. Oh God, help us to be faithful to our new owner, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.